Hello and welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. We are thrilled to have you join us once again. Uh, Today we're going to be jumping right into Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We are finishing out 1 Corinthians where we left off in our last conversation. And we're going to be picking it back up, uh, reading all the way through 2 Corinthians, trying to see how these two books both speak to each other and maybe how both of them have a little bit of a different voice unto themselves. So we begin today looking specifically at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and we jump right in as the Apostle Paul talks to the community there in Corinth about spiritual gifts. One of the struggles in Corinth seems to be a a unity, a division, and they seem to be wrestling with how to be the church together. And so Paul evidently feels compelled here to outline their misunderstanding of gifts, both in terms of the gifts themselves, but more so the idea that there is a hierarchy and that those with the, the more flashy gifts are somehow more valued within the community. And Michael, maybe your background is helpful here. As a Presbyterian, when we use the word gifts, I think we tend to mean a talent or an ability or an inclination. And probably we capture less of the nuance of the New Testament, a supernatural gifting, something that the Holy Spirit does uh, sporadically and specifically within people that has an immediate impact. Yeah, certainly from a Pentecostal context, you know, I do think you can look at this with maybe a, a little bit different light, just in that Paul gives a list. He talks about the message of wisdom or the message of knowledge or there's gifts of healing, there's miraculous powers, there's prophecy. And as Paul lays out this list of potential gifts that you can almost hear people in the worship service all exercising at the same time in a community where people are jockeying for hierarchical kind of status, where one person is thinking about their wisdom or their gifts are superseding others, You can see how the idea of God gifting us turns into a mechanism for separation, much like the disciples. Who's going to sit at your right hand, Jesus? Paul comes back with the same kind of message that Jesus gave his disciples. It has nothing to do with your position, your gifts, your particular exercise of of the power of the Spirit. What matters is, are those gifts building up the one body? Are they serving others and making them stronger? Because A person's measure of our true giftedness by the Spirit is to what extent we are all building up this one body of Christ, which we are members of. And one of the things I really appreciate that Paul does here is to push this idea of lowering oneself. And we're going to see that personally for Paul really clearly in the second letter to the Corinthians. But even here in chapter 12, teaching the congregation, teaching the church that those hierarchies are out of place with the gospel, that they are to aspire to help one another grow in faith, that they are connected to one another. I think this is one of the strong passages about what it means to be a church, to let each person find their giftedness and practice it together without the idea that some are more valuable than others. And that is a very hard, very human struggle. And we see even here in the first evolution of the church, how often the church has gotten it wrong. But I I very much appreciate Paul's take here in chapter 12, this idea of the body and the oneness we have in Christ and what it means in terms of how we evaluate, treat, and show respect to one another. I don't know if it's right to call it a principle, but I I certainly think an example that comes from this letter is a reminder that a church's vitality is deeply connected to how it treats 
its least honorable members. Paul gives that very concrete example of even when we dress, we give special attention to the parts of our physical bodies that we consider socially the least honorable. And how we treat those people, however we might identify them, however we might find them characterized, how we treat the least is very much a reflection of the health of the place. Because if we can treat those who, for whatever reasons, are considered without honor honorably in our place, that's a good measure of the fact that we've heard the gospel and it's taking root among us. Yeah, not only that, Michael, but you and I are people who get to be up front a lot. And I think, as we both know, when you're up front, you get an often undeserved amount of the credit. But the truth is, it's people behind the scenes who are volunteering, who are making phone calls, who are folding bulletins, who are delivering groceries, who are bringing food. These are the things that make a church work. And and often those unsung people are the backbone of any congregation's attempt to live out the gospel in real and practical ways. And yet there is this desire within many of us to be the upfront person. And I think we see that struggle here in the 12th chapter. Absolutely. And when you look ahead, just literally one chapter, What I find so fascinating is this very popular wedding chapter, the chapter about love. You might remember, if I don't have love, I'm like a resounding gong. And it's a passage that I imagine if you've been in a church for very long at all, you've heard before. It's a beautiful, almost poetic description of love. But we have culturally, I think, misappropriated it. We've begun to think of this love in the sense of emotive, even relational, in in the sense of between people who are caught up in love. And we've failed to see that when Paul talks about love here, he doesn't have in mind a romantic couple. He has in mind a group of people who are overcoming hierarchies. They're overcoming the temptation to put one another down with their own giftedness and abilities. And instead he's saying, love is what it looks like when the body is knit together in Christ, when the least are raised and when the most, whatever that means, are lowered. I agree 100%. This isn't a passage to a couple. This is a passage to a congregation. How do we love one another And it is interesting that the love that would define a quality marriage is the same love that is demanded of a quality congregation. It takes patience and kindness and not insisting on your own way and not being resentful in order to live out love in whatever context we need to do that. And one of the things I'm always struck with as I read this passage is while in our culture we tend to think of love as an emotion or a feeling, none of these are feeling words. These are all how we act. For Paul, love is defined by how we treat another person, not how we feel about them, not what they evoke in us, but what we produce toward them. Are we patient toward them? Are we rejoicing in truth? Are we celebrating the goodness in them? Are we biting our tongue and not being rude or arrogant or boastful? For Paul, love is this series of activities that are born out in the way that we treat one another and have in some ways very little almost to do with how we feel about each other as we talk about love in our culture often. Clint, I don't get as much of this mail as you do, but this is my guess. Let me throw it out there and see if this is true. I would bet in the weekly mail that we get promising us the next latest congregational growth promise, that 
almost if none of those include the straight up and difficult task of just try to foster love in your congregation. To dig down, to say no to people who are belittling and who are pushing out, to say yes towards the choices and concrete actions that raise up the least and also in the midst of that to root out the division, the gossip, the people who are finding ways to play that hierarchical game and instead to be a gospel living place. And this is what it looks like to be a living, vibrant, growing congregation. The problem is it's a classic example of easier said than done. Yeah, and I think that it matters that we get this beautiful chapter in a letter to probably Paul's messiest church. Absolutely. It's not an accident that these great, inspiring words about love are written to people who seem to be struggling and even failing to live them out. Probably probably not a coincidence. As we keep moving in through this book, we come into the section where Paul's now going to talk about what's happening in the worship of the people in Corinth. And it's a, it's a good reminder to all of us that the lives that we live outside of our buildings, the, the conversations that we have over coffee in our fellowship hall, all of this is a small measure of our life together. You have to add to that how we worship is a reflection of the gospel alive in our place. And Paul, for lack of better words, takes the Corinthian church to task a little bit and says that you're using worship as an avenue for your own self-advancement and not for the upbuilding of the community. And he just says, stop. Yeah, Presbyterians have loved the fact that in the back part of the 14th chapter, Paul spends a lot of time on worship being orderly, that there should be a rhythm and a flow to worship. But essentially, I think what's behind all that, Michael, is the idea that worship needs constantly to be pointed toward Christ and not toward us. We don't think of it that way. We think of worship as something that we receive, and the truth is worship is something we give. And we give it best when there is some framework that we can all participate in, that we can all join in. It doesn't mean that it's one size fits all, but the Corinthians seem to have this loose idea that anything goes. And Paul seems critical of the idea. And in fact, I think says it's getting in the way. You are not worshiping because of all these things, because of this messy disorder, this hierarchy, this competition. These are things that are keeping you from experiencing worship and you've got to stop. We should never forget that worship is mortal human beings attempting to give praise and glory and honor to an immortal, all-powerful God. And so, therefore, everything that we do in worship is like children doing their best to put up thanksgiving and praise to a perfect father. And as those who do live in a very structured kind of worshiping environment, we may sometimes make the mistake of putting too much emphasis on the thing itself. And by that, I mean the order itself. Ultimately, it's who we are that we lift up to God in worship that matters. And as Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he is very pointed that we need to stop being like children. In fact, he says in regard to evil, be infants, but let your thinking be adults. Be be adults in how you think about lifting up our praises to God because we want to offer God something instead of always seeking for that attention to be brought back to us, which is, by the way, the reason why Presbyterians have a long history of having very sparsely decorated sanctuaries and very carefully thought out musical elements in our worship because we don't want people to get carried away by the space 
or by the order or even by the orator, the preacher or the reader or the presenter. We, we want people to be directed upward. And in that, we believe that God is glorified. Yeah, there are a couple of comments I think I would add. One is, I wish, and I don't want to beat a dead horse because we talked about it in the last podcast, but I wish Paul had been a little more careful with his language here about it's shameful for women to speak and they should be silent. But I do think even that sort of reflects this idea that he wraps up with all things must be done decently and in order. I think that's contextual. I think the Corinthians are struggling with lots of things and one of them may be along those lines. But but more importantly, Michael, I think it's significant that Paul connects a conversation about worship to the next chapter, which focuses on the resurrection of Christ. That for Paul, worship is always about the risen one, and it is not something that stands alone. These aren't good ideas because people like them better. This isn't because it makes your church more successful or more effective. or anything. It's because when you worship in the true spirit of worship, you are better able to honor and glorify the risen Christ. And that's the reason that you should thoughtfully and prayerfully and carefully approach worship in a way that honors Jesus. Because if not, we're missing its very core. I think what makes this letter so challenging to get your mind around is it's different from Romans. This letter is not just theology, and not to say that Romans is, there's pastoral elements in it, but this book is switching seamlessly from theology of resurrection, this beautiful poetic language about love, to very concrete, dismiss this person from your membership. In just a moment, it's going to be, we're going to raise an offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem. This is this just living document, which is just filled with the DNA of Paul, the leader, speaking to the church in Corinth and them working together in this sort of what seems to be at this moment a difficult dance. And I do think that is a beautiful image of where we live today, that our theology, which we're always learning and growing in, should always be connected to our practice. And that practice should be informing our theology. And we should always be trying to learn more, become more like Christ, and to see that lived out in our real lives, in our worship, in our time together, in our fellowship, in our service outside these walls. In other words, the Christian life that we see in Corinthians is a whole life. It's not one hour a week. It is absolutely every hour we live, whether it's within the walls of our homes, the walls of a sanctuary, or the walls of a place of work. We as Christians should be transformed and we should be continuing to live into this gospel we've received in Jesus Christ. I think we see here that faith is not an individual journey. Faith is not simply my own personal beliefs and practices. It is my connection to all of those who are in Christ together. And that as we live into that in a congregation, we do so as community. We do so connected to one another. So that if my theology, if my practice doesn't connect with other believers, then it's incomplete, that it's short-sighted. I agree with that, Clint. And in fact, I, I think I might go one step more. I'd be interested in what you think. I think in a consumerist culture where we go to the store and we choose from five varieties of salsa, not just the kinds of salsa, the, the brands of salsa, I do think we might be tempted to think of church in the same way. I want to go to the church that says the right things, makes me feel good, that I agree with everything that they say. And in fact, I think that's the temptation of people who eschew church altogether. They say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to get hung up with all those other Christians because that just leads to misunderstandings and disputes. And I'm much more comfortable and happy by myself. And the truth is, 
Absolutely. We would all be much happier, more comfortable by ourselves. But Paul makes it absolutely clear that faith is worked out in the body. And so we, if we're not being challenged, should be concerned. If we're not having growing pains, then we're not growing. And that is a concern that we need to address head on. Yeah, I'm astounded as I consider again this church in Corinth, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, old, young, male, female, former pagans, former Pharisees, whatever that mix was, how difficult it is to live into that unity we find in Jesus Christ. And one of the things, not to make this a commercial, but one of the things I appreciate about Presbyterians is that we, at our best, have refrained from labeling ourselves conservative or liberal or this kind of Presbyterian or that. We have done some of that. But at our best, we have people sitting in our congregation shoulder to shoulder who are Republican or Democrat or wealthy or struggling, who have lots of things figured out and who don't have much figured out. And that makes it hard. But that's also what makes it great, that the thing that brings us together is the fact that we follow Christ, that we may not have a great deal else in common, but Jesus is enough to make us one in in his name. So I would encourage you for just a second to imagine that 1 Corinthians is the letter that gets dropped in your doorstep. It gets read before the congregation. A lot of the congregation is going to be illiterate, and so it's going to be read to them. They're going to hear it. You can imagine some of these very searing moments in the letter where the air gets sucked out of the room and the congregation is all like, oh, wow, we know the name of the person he's talking about, or wow, he's addressing my exercise of gifts in worship and this incredibly personal moment. You've got to imagine that this letter generated a response, and I think as we start turning our attention towards the second letter, we're going to be able to see some of the reverberations, some of those movements that come in it. And as we sort of make that transition, Paul ends the letter with this talk about a gift that he's collecting. And I think he really flushes that out in 2 Corinthians, what that's all about. So I think we can maybe talk more about that. But the reality is for Paul, it's not just what we believe. It's not just that we are one body but it also requires something of our pocketbooks. And that is going to be a topic he's going to address directly in his second letter to them. I think it helps going into 2 Corinthians to realize that it is markedly different than the first letter in some ways. In the first letter, Paul's dealing with issues. He's doing so as a pastor, as a, as a trusted advisor, almost as a father figure to the congregation. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, that relationship has been strained. It sounds like our best guess is that at some point Paul got a letter and it was critical. And there were some people traveling through Corinth who criticized Paul and the church got on board with that, that Paul has been wounded in some way. This letter is much different, Michael. I think we see here a strained relationship. And while Paul does deal with issues, the subtext of 2 Corinthians, in my estimation, is less about the issues and more about the relationship he has with them and that they have with him. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the Paul that you see in 1 Corinthians is far quicker to say, do what I ask or I'm going to show up with a big stick. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is far more relational not emotional, but he's certainly far more willing to admit 
that there has been grief. You know, he comes to them with a completely different tone and temperament. Some of that may be being connected to like what you're saying, Clint, the idea that he's on rocky ground and needs to navigate that. Some of that may be, as he says, thanks for listening and repenting. Now we need to sort of strike off on a new foot. So there's a sense in which in this letter, Paul is actually setting a new tone for the relationship. We had to deal with hard stuff. You dealt with it. Now we're going to enter a new season. And there is a softer way in which you can uh, move into that season than you had to be in the season of dealing with the issues. Yeah, I think this letter has a more personal feel to me. And I think the idea of a pastor and a church that have suffered a split of some kind and are now trying to reconcile without reopening the wounds is a good backdrop to read this letter. So with that in mind, you turn to the book, you start reading in. Paul gives just a kickoff about some of his plans and how those are changing. And he talks about how for him, he's using these words of comfort and distress. And he talks about sharing in the abundant sufferings of Christ. And I think as you open this letter, you see Paul sort of offering an olive branch a little bit and also just trying to sort of warm up the waters a little bit as he's going to move into the main thrust of his request later in the letter. Yeah, you don't have to get too far. You know, verse one of chapter two, I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. I didn't want to bring you pain. I want to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. All of these things I think Paul is using to set the tone, a gentler introduction as he assures them of his appreciation, of his love for them, of their potential, even in the places they're not living up to it. I really think this is an interesting look at how Paul pastors in a pretty difficult moment. Second chapter, Clint, is a great contrast to 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is telling them, this is a person living outside the bounds of the gospel. Put him out so that he might be saved. Second chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is now talking about an offender and says, this person has caused grief, but now it's time to forgive and comfort. So reaffirm your love for them. If you forgive him, I forgive him. We all commend him to Christ who forgives. There's this reconciliation which is in view here. And so Paul both in the first letter speaks of concrete discipline. And in the second letter, he talks about the purpose for that discipline, which is reconciliation. And so, yes, we already see that tone being worked out. We have an offender in both cases, but the way that we're addressing them is certainly different in the tone. Yeah, and I think we see a mark of Paul's leadership in that in 1 Corinthians, he essentially tells them what to do. In this letter, he lets them know his trust by saying, what you do, I will do. If you forgive, I also also forgive. In other words, I follow your lead. And that's an empowering stance for Paul to take. And I think you're right, Michael, a, a different stance than we see in the first letter. Which, just as a quick aside, Clint, that's one of the reasons it's difficult to read Paul. Because if you read Paul with the idea of creating crystal clear theological structures of if this, then do that, you're going to struggle. You're going to spin wheels because Paul is addressing real people with real situations and congregations struggling in concrete ways, which, by the way, we don't know the whole backstory. We're looking at this through many different removed angles and we're trying to do our best to reconstruct it. And so if we're on honest, reading Paul should never be an exercise of getting it down to the core thing that should always determine what we do or don't do. I think instead when we come to Paul, 
we should be looking for what's the spirit of God look like here? What what does God do? What does the gospel sound like in a context that's divided or to a person who's been reproved? What's the gospel notes that work in harmony? Because Paul is dealing with these specific issues. We can't narrow it down to exactly which issue he's dealing with at this moment. But we can say when a person's been reproved, the gospel looks like reconciliation. And that's the thing that we can apply every time. Does that make sense? It does. I think there's great wisdom in that, Michael. We need to remember as we open the Bible and read it as the divinely inspired eternal word of God, Paul was writing a letter to a church about a person with a name. He didn't understand himself to be writing scripture that would guide the church forever. He's dealing with a very personal, very difficult situation, and he's doing so guided by his faith in Christ and the guidance and leadership of the Spirit. But we now look in that for what it says to us. And again, I think the power of that is that we see Paul leading people not only to Christ, but in Christ, and we learn from it. Just real quickly, before we get out of chapter 2, chapter 2 already brings up this idea that is going to be woven throughout 2 Corinthians, and so you should really be attuned to it. This idea of finances, of money. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. And this idea of Paul getting paid by the Corinthians at previous points in his ministry, money that Paul's going to soon be asking for in the letter. There's this whole undercurrent of finances present here, which you might not initially think to be in our holy scriptures, but that is a real living issue here in this letter. And this is just sort of one of the first pinpricks of it going to be discussed uh, later on in the book. One of the guesses we make is that those who are criticizing Paul were saying something like he was taking advantage of the people, that he was raising funds, that he was keeping the money, that he was somehow mishandling their generosity. And it looks as though part of what Paul has to do throughout this letter is go back to that charge again and again and answer it. In fact, he begins chapter three, are we commending ourselves again? And again, this sounds like it was one of the charges that somebody has made against him. Chapter four, one of the great chapters of this book, Michael, uh, treasuring clay jars. That's a phrase that people would know. And then this wonderful verse, we are afflicted, but we are not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We, we carry always in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in us. And then he ends, we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away because we look not at what can be seen for what can be seen is temporary. What cannot be seen is eternal. There is some wonderful devotional material scattered throughout this book. And I think you could argue some of Paul's best words are found in this letter. It is very clear in every letter of Paul that we've read thus far, the issue of the bodily resurrection is a central tenet of Paul's teaching. He has addressed it in differing ways and he's got to it through different means. But once again, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk about what it means to be a new body, what the resurrection of that body means. And so I think we once again have to recognize that the early church struggled with the truth claim of what the resurrection meant. It was so transformational in its implication that the earliest Christians 
are being stretched to their limits to understand the meaning of it. And I think that that is one of the key challenges in, once again, Paul's ministry here is he's trying to help the Corinthians see that what Christ has done in resurrection is to make everything we assumed before that go away. But that doesn't mean lawlessness. That doesn't mean that now you can do whatever you want, the thing that he addressed directly to the Romans. And he seems to be sort of like a pilot in an airplane, nudging the the stick a little bit to the left and then a little bit to the right. And he's going to try to sort of get back on track so that the Corinthians can land because there seems to be a lot of micro adjustments that need to happen in light of this core truth. Yeah, and it seems as though having kind of dressed them down, now Paul is seeking in lots of ways to raise them up. You know, he talks about how he he boasts about them. He talks about how he's sorry he hurt them, but now he rejoices that they repented, that they have proven themselves guiltless, that they are a great people, a great place, a faithful, becoming a faithful church. And again, the breadth of Paul that he can come down on them harshly when needed, but then in the aftermath, very gently try to encourage them back to faith. Well, and I think it's worth giving some concrete examples, Clint, because your point, I think, needs to be remembered, is that it does seem that Paul made more of a ripple than maybe he expected. And I guess I'd point you to Second Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 11. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. So there seems to be a relationship there that has been strained. And then if you move forward a little bit and you get over to chapter 7, verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So here, within two chapters breadth, Paul says, I know that I really hurt you. And also, I did sort of regret it, but now that I see it's caused repentance within you, I think that it was a good thing. Yeah, and just down from there, verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you, period. Yep. That, that's a very empowering thing to say to a congregation that you have scolded harshly. And to individuals that you have called the task and and now to say, we are reconnected in Christ. I know that you had to hear these words from me and I'm sorry that you had to hear them, but I am grateful that we're now moving forward again together. And I know you to be completely capable of embodying the gospel in your church. It's a wonderful compliment to them. And a helpful reminder for those of us who are seeking to try to be one body in Christ, that we should not be afraid of healthy, godly conflict. I don't mean fighting, but but I do mean there are times in which we need to speak difficult but yet honest words to one another. And then once those words are spoken, we need to be willing to accept forgiveness, transformation, no strings attached, grace, and move on. And those two things need to be simultaneously true. And once again, that's easier said than done. Yeah, I don't think he quotes it, but there's a proverb that says the wounds of a friend can be trusted. In other words, we need people in our life who will tell us some of the things we don't want to hear. Absolutely. Which, by the way, Clint, you read it. I have complete confidence in you. The very next words is about the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian churches. And we enter into this whole section in which I'm just going to summarize it crudely. Paul is fundraising. 
and he has a ministry and a purpose and a reason, but he's fundraising. He is, but in fairness, I think he's also giving this church a chance to find its best self in serving others as well. Clearly, it, it is partly about the gift, but I think it's also about their need to give it. Because a selfish church is a church that's not where it needs to be. And, and Paul is giving them the challenge of looking beyond themselves. Hey, you have all these problems, you have all these things, but here's an opportunity to do good work for brothers and sisters in Christ that are hurting. And it's amazing, Michael, the single biggest difference I see in churches, in my experience, that are growing or are dying is whether they're outward focused or inward focused. Inward focused church tends to shrivel up and die. And an outward-focused church tends to do well and experience some life. And that's oversimplified, but I just think it's true. It's absolutely true. I think there's something really significant that we can trace all the way back to Jesus's teaching that what we do with our money is a reflection of the things that our heart cherishes. And I think there's even an egg-chicken scenario here, because as we give, our hearts are transformed to care about the things that we give, too. And so it matters to Paul that this relatively Gentile church has an opportunity to give to the needy who would be majority Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. That crossing of not only geography, but racial boundaries— faith history, and even language boundaries, that matters for Paul. Yeah, and I think as the church has always tried to do, Paul puts our giving in context of our receiving. So he ends that chapter with, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Our, our giving is always a reflection of what God has given us. And because we have received so deeply, we are to give generously. And Paul minces no words here, makes no bones about it. This is an opportunity he hopes the church in Corinth will take advantage of. And I would go so far as to say he thinks they should. As I read it here, I, I know I was asking myself all of this language of, about put up with some foolishness, put up with me boasting a little bit in a foolish way. I do think there is some question in this coming section when Paul's going to boast about himself. How much sarcasm is here? How much irony is here? How, how much is Paul seriously boasting? And how much of this is playful sort of mocking of the boasting he sees in Corinth? I think this would be a tricky one to parse out all the way without having known uh, the exact people Paul's writing to. I think that's true. One of the guesses about 2 Corinthians is that it may be have been smaller letters pieced together or edited in some way rather than one long seamless letter to start with. And I will say when you run from, when you go from chapter nine to chapter 10, you do get that sense of a pretty drastic change of direction. You have this encouragement to give. And then Paul spends all of chapter 10 kind of defending himself against these charges that sound like quotes that he's heard from the Corinthians. I guess I'm humble when I'm face to face, but I'm bold when I'm away from you. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. And then Paul moves toward this 11th chapter where he's answering all of these charges. So he's getting called weak. He's getting called, you know, not a great preacher. He, he's not doing you guys any good. He's not strong enough. He's not good enough. He doesn't compare with us is the sense you get from his critics. And the way that Paul answers that is phenomenal. 
that he decides to boast, but he boasts of all the things that he, in his words, show my weakness. I, I love this chapter. Of all of Paul's writing, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians is has got to be high on my list of favorites. You can just see Paul riffing on his resume, right? Because this is the thing, if Paul was applying to a modern-day Presbyterian church for pastorship. This is all the stuff he'd put in there. And he's saying, yeah, I was a Jew. In fact, I wasn't just a Jew. I was a, I was a zealous Jew, and I was in the highest tier of Jews. I was so zealous that I was actually going out with the permission of the elders capturing Christians. Oh, and by the way, I can top that. I can top that. I can top that. And you can just almost hear the people in Corinth receiving this and thinking about all of the resumes that they've gotten from these better preachers these more strong, charismatic personalities. And Paul, who says, yeah, I've got all of that and more. And by the way, that's the weakness. Let's talk about the strength, and that is Christ. And that is, I think, within there is the truth that Jesus Christ is first, and he is the thing that we should be pointing to. And any Christian should be very cautious when we fail to do that. Yeah, and to your point, Michael, is this great verse, chapter 11, 20, 21, you put up with it when someone makes slaves of you or preys upon you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we're too weak for that, which is clearly sarcasm. In other words, I guess you'll let people run all over you, but I'm not going to. And then I love how Paul sets the hook here. Are they Hebrews? Me too. Israelites? Yep. Descendants of Abraham? Yep. Ministers of Christ? I'm a better one. And then a complete 180 turn. More imprisonments, more floggings. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. And all of these things that you would expect him to say, I've done miracles. And by the way, I was in a, participated in a resurrection. That's what his critics are saying, that they've got that on their resumes. So he talks about his suffering. And then he brings that to the point of saying, because it's my suffering that shows where Christ is strong. It's not my strength that shows that. It's my weakness that shows his strength. And it's just really, really good. And there's another level of that. Once you get to chapter 12, Paul's going to turn away from these physical sufferings. And he's going to talk about his divine knowledge, this revelation he had from the Lord. By the way, remember the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, we got this idea that they were fighting over whose revelations were better. So now Paul's taking it to the next level. He says, not only do I have all of these marks, but I also have revelations, except here's the hook. Here's the turn again. It's not the revelation which brings the value. It's the fact that that in that revelation, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And then he talks about how the revelation itself brought a form of suffering. So it's not just the physical things of the world that are foolishness, but also this high and lofty stuff that you're all grasping for. That is another place of suffering. And I revel in that because, and that's where we get this amazingly beautiful verse, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Yes. I think maybe to summarize, Paul is saying what all Christians should aspire to say. I'm not trying to show you myself. I'm not trying to show you me. I'm trying to show you Christ. So let's talk about what he's done in the moments that I've been weak and struggled and how he has ministered and how he has given grace and how he has forgiven. I don't need to show you my pedigree because I can show you something better. I can show you Christ and I'll show you where I'm weak because he's strong enough for all of us in our weakness. And again, 
uh, outstanding sermon, outstanding preaching. And we don't know what the Corinthians did with it, but that had to make an impact. It certainly has since then. I think one thing you can extrapolate from this is we as Christians need to continually be returning to the reality, as Paul says in chapter 13, verse 4, for to be sure, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. That is a a wonderful life mission statement for all people who are seeking to be Christians. We should not run from our own weakness but rather recognize that it was Christ who took on flesh, who lived into that weakness in the most meaningful way possible, and that out of that weakness, God was able to make strength by the power of his creative love, redeeming love. And if we can capture that for ourselves, we can turn our prayers away from, Lord, remove from me everything that's hard, and instead we can lift that up and say, Lord, take what is hard, And like Jesus Christ, by the power of your might, make it something beautiful. And I love the next verse, Michael. Examine yourselves to see whether you are living in the faith. So much of the Corinthian problem is that they have looked at others and evaluated their faith and their gifts and the criticism of Paul and Paul's writing and Paul's teaching. So what wise counsel to leave them with? Examine yourselves to see whether you are living the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? I also think it's significant, Michael, that we end the letter, put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Again, what Paul wishes for the church is to live in peace, to share love, to be of one mind, one heart, to be unified in Christ and live together as his body. Yeah, and and you couldn't hear that, those final words from Paul as a Corinthian without thinking of the previous letter with that whole section on love and clanging symbols. And it is clear that these things are tied together. It's clear that this is a relationship that has some length and some distance and some significant depth. And I do think we can, as Christians, look at this and see that even in the midst of of the Apostle Paul's relationship with a young church. There is conflict, there's getting stuff wrong, and there's patient, loving redirection. And it's never for the purpose of that church being bigger unto itself or or more popular or the Corinthians having higher revelation or whatever our temptation might be. It's always about us in our unity, which is accomplished through love reflecting the love of Jesus Christ within ourselves and to the world, and therefore living as the people who were called to be God's people. Yeah, I think Paul very much models the idea that, like God, he won't give up on this congregation, that he cares for them too deeply to let them go astray. And so whether it is with harsh words or kind words, he's going to try and help them get back on track be interesting to know what happened to the Corinthian church. We don't have those records. It would be fun to know what these seeds may have grown into. I like to think they got it figured out and did well. I hope that's true. 
Absolutely. Well, regardless of what happened to the Corinthian church, First Presbyterian Church in Spirit Lake lives into our charge to hear this good news and for it to change us. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope that you have found something in this encouraging. I hope that Jesus Christ works within our weakness, that we and the world might see his strength. We'll see you again next week as we turn to the next section of the pastoral letters. And in it, we meet new communities and see new challenges being met by the gospel.